From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. How much would it cost to fix the climate crisis? And who should pay? Should it be the United States, the biggest polluter historically? Or should it be China, the largest annual polluter these days? Is the entire industrial world to blame? These are just some of the thorny questions we're going to tackle on this episode about climate finance. Later on, our reporter is going to take a look at carbon reduction projects around the world. First though, let's get a better understanding of the economics of the climate crisis. What it would actually take to fix this. For that and many other topics, there's really no one better to speak with than our guest today, Joseph Stieglitz, a Nobel Prize winning economist and professor at Columbia University in New York. Joseph Stiglitz, thank you so much for joining the program. Nice to be here. So you're an economist by trade and a Nobel Prize winning one at that. And you know, you've written a bunch about inequality, globalization. Tell me how you're thinking about the climate crisis and especially how, you know, economics or like how financial systems are related to this problem. How's that thinking changed over time from the mid 90s when you began this work to 2020 when we're really, you know, seem to be at a breaking point of sorts? Yeah, so from a point of view of economics, the central idea of climate is that actions taken by one individual have consequences for our entire globe, mm-hmm. which they don't take into account. Uh, when individuals burn fossil fuels, they don't take into account how that carbon goes into the atmosphere and leads to global warming. So economists have long been concerned about what we call externalities, but there's never been an externality of the magnitude of the pervasiveness of this. So uh, it, it is uh, really centering our attention to the fact that our whole global economy, which for 200 years has been so dependent on fossil fuels, is based around something that is unsustainable. And we have to find an alternative. And we have. We have been. But we haven't yet had the political will to move there. So this is kind of like if I decide, you know, in a small example, like I'm going to take a flight to Europe. Like that fee that I'm going to pay to the airline for that flight probably doesn't include the cost associated with the pollution associated with that flight, right? Like is that kind of the basic idea? Exactly. So the market looks at the private benefits of your travel, the private cost but doesn't think about the broader societal cost of all that CO2 that goes into the atmosphere and all the consequences of that additional CO2 going on in terms of climate change. You know, you don't think about it directly, but you are contributing to the Australian and California wildfires. Mm -hmm. You're contributing to the tornadoes and cyclones, you are playing a role in all these events, which have proven to be so costly to the world. So this idea of carbon pricing, or you know, in one form, this would be a carbon tax, right? It's kind of like, I don't know, a positive way to think of it would be as a a guilt-free way to like <laughs> make those externalities, make the bad things that happen when we burn fossil fuels part of that system, it would just sort of be in the price, right? That 
it, it would be slightly that's, more expensive to do the polluting thing. That, that's one way I've heard it described. That's right. It, and it, as we say, it would provide you more incentives, uh, a greater occasion to think about the consequences of your action. Uh, it's why the price system works. So at one level, anybody who believes in the market economy has to believe we ought to be doing something about pricing of carbon. You mentioned earlier 1.5 degrees Celsius and 2 degrees Celsius, which are kind of like abstract targets, but they're at the heart of like the international conversation and negotiations around limiting warming. And there's kind of this consensus that anything past those levels would be would be even more catastrophic. Um, I'm wondering on the economic side of that, like what would it cost to actually meet those targets? Actually, not that much. Uh, I had an international commission with uh, Lorik Stern in London, and we concluded that we could, the world could meet those goals with a very mild price on carbon that would be no greater than the kind of perturbation that we've had in the price of energy as a result of some of the oil shocks that we've had in the past. So we didn't swallow those price increases easily, but we managed. How how much were the increases? We're talking about, uh, this was many years ago, back in the 70s, uh, you know, something of the order of magnitude of no more than 2 or 3% of GDP would be uh, the cost of going through the transition. So it's not zero. But when you think about the economy growing every year at 2%, you know, if you said over a period of 20 years, it'll absorb just a fraction of the growth that we otherwise would have had, then you say, well, you know, we obviously could bear that cost. In fact, one of the things that our commission argued is that overall, this would be actually good for the economy in part because it would stimulate a lot of innovation as the process of moving from fossil fuels to renewables uh, would stimulate a lot of research and and really put our economy in a new trajectory. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like kind of on that point, if you're not the United States, if you're a country that doesn't have all these systems in place to basically pay for uh, rebuilding in the aftermath of a climate-related disaster, what do you do, and like, who should be paying um, for these very expensive and deadly disasters that are related to this global crisis? Well, that's a difficult issue. I mean, obviously, I think, and I think a lot of people think from a moral point of view, those who created the problem, i.e. those who put the fossil fuel, uh, the CO2, into the atmosphere, should be held accountable. And that you know, the largest historical polluter has been the United States. And on a per capita basis, we are still the largest uh, polluter by a long measure. Mm. Uh, there's been an international agreement that the advanced countries ought to contribute to helping the developing countries adapt to and respond to the consequences of climate change. But unfortunately, that was mostly rhetoric. When the time came to actually put up the money, very little has been forthcoming. Hmm. So I'm wondering if you can boil down a, a, like a few points for me in terms of the ways in which um, public policy and the markets in particular could be used to leverage 
a, like a quicker transition to a clean economy and to sort of help make those payments to countries that are struggling with disasters to make that a little more equitable. We need regulations. And, you know, some people are very critical of regulations. They say that they're cumbersome. In some cases, that's true. But in other cases, uh, regulations can be a very simple and effective way. For instance, just saying no more coal-fired electric generating plants, easy regulation to enunciate, easy regulation to enforce, and would make a very big difference. Another thing I haven't mentioned is the importance of public investments. And this would be investments that would actually, I think, enhance our standards of living and promote economic growth. So one of the things that would reduce carbon emissions is better public transportation systems. And that would be so much better for our economy and for our society. The people who suffer the most from inadequate public transportation are, of course, the poor. So we, at the same time, we would address one of our country's most important problems, uh, the looming inequality, and do something about climate change. So you mentioned inequality there, which I know has been a big focus of your work across a, a bunch of different areas, not just climate. Um, but tell me about the intersection there. Like, How do you see inequality and the climate crisis as being related? Well, they're related in multiple ways. One of them is that, unfortunately, those who are likely to bear the biggest burden of climate change are the poorest. That's true internationally. The countries that are going to be most devastated tend to be in the tropics, Bangladesh. More than 100 million people will find their land underwater. Uh, in the Sahel, increasing desertification is going to create a problem. Guatemala, there's a problem of people's uh, lack of rainfall. While the direct impact is going to be felt in these uh, poor countries, uh, we won't be insulated. Most national security experts believe that it will set in motion migration, international tensions, conflict. So we can't insulate ourselves Hmm. from the uh, impacts of these very adverse effects on poor people. Even with the United States, the effects are also going to be worse on uh, the poor for a couple reasons. Some of them have to do with land that is most affordable is also land that is most vulnerable. So the poor often live in areas that are going to be uh, most affected. Um, In climate activism, there's this push for both individual people and big banks to divest from fossil fuel interests, right? So like not to give loans to coal companies, not to give loans to oil companies. If you own a personal portfolio to dump any part of that that, that touches fossil fuels, I wonder if that's something that you support and if you think it's effective. I, I do support it. I do think it's effective. Uh, it would be more effective if more people did it. it basically, what I said before is I think markets are often short-sighted. And there's a sort of an unrealistic optimism that somehow this problem of climate change is going to go away. Uh, It's unpleasant, and we always want things that are unpleasant uh, to go away. 
unbelievably, oil companies are continuing to explore for oil that is particularly what we call deep water oil that's going to be very expensive to extract. Uh, it's going to be what economists call a stranded asset. Uh, nobody will want to pay that high price given the that we're going to be going to a, a close-to-carbon-neutral world, a non-fossil fuel world. So encouraging firms not to make those investments is very important. And the only way we can do that besides getting legislation passed to regulate and to tax, uh, the only other way to do it is to try to get the market price down. So they say it's just not worth it. And so, of course, any one individual divesting is not going to make a, a significant difference. But if there is a movement, a national global movement for divestment, it can have an effect on price and therefore send a clearer market signal that that's not the direction we should be going in. So you're a, a former chief economist at the World Bank, right? I'm wondering what you think that's like right. the big... Um, international financial institutions, what role they have in both causing this problem or what role they could have in in trying to push the world economy towards um, away from fossil fuels and towards cleaner energy sources in particular? The very good news is that the major international institutions have really uh, bought into the importance of climate change and have become a, a very important contributor to fighting climate change. A good atmosphere, an atmosphere without uh, all the CO2 in and greenhouse gases, is a global public good, something from which everybody in the world benefits. And the international institutions see themselves as uh, assisting in providing th this kind of global public good. So the new head of the IMF has put climate change at the top of the agenda. The World Bank has been working for years in trying to encourage and facilitate uh, developing and emerging markets, uh, uh, restructuring their economy towards a, a greener economy. So they have both the potential to really make a contribution, and I think they're actually doing it. Obviously, if they had more money, uh, they could do a better job. And you've, I think, used like World War metaphors, right, in, in thinking about how big this challenge is, like comparing this to World War II or, or even World War III. Um, I mean, this is like trillions of dollars we're talking about here, right? Um, and do you think that that is possible? Like, are we up to this task? I, yes, I, I do. I mean, I, economically, uh, we, can, we can clearly afford it. I mean, I often point out that when we went to World War II, nobody said, can we afford? Uh, what was the cost-benefit analysis of defending the country? <laughs> it was very clear. We said, we're going to win. <laughs> and we're going to, you know, we will devote the resources, and this is a battle for our survival. And in many ways, we're lucky that we're at this moment that because of the advances of technology, we are able to free up labor and capital in order to win this battle to save our planet. Joseph Stiglitz, thank you so much for your time. It was really a pleasure to, to talk with you. Nice to talk to you. That's Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stieglitz, a professor at Columbia University. So we've just heard about how banks and governments can play a role in jump-starting green projects. 
This is something our partners at the Climate Investment Funds know a lot about, as they've invested in many climate initiatives in developing and middle-income countries. Our producer, Emily Johnson, looked into a few projects of theirs in Jamaica, Tajikistan, and in Turkey. She wanted to find out how this actually works on the ground. Tajikistan is home to some of the highest mountains in the world. Way up in the icy peaks is the entirety of the landlocked nation's water supply. Every spring and summer, meltwater from snow and glaciers trickles downhill, splitting into a vast network of tributaries. These abundant mountain streams nourish the land and allow over half the population to make a living in agriculture. But the future of this water supply is under threat. That's Tajikistan President Emamali Rahman speaking last year at the UNESCO General Conference in Paris. Of the 13,000 small glaciers in his country, he tells the assembly, a thousand have already disappeared. And it's not just Tajikistan that will be affected by shifts in the hydrological cycle, he says. All of Central Asia is concerned about floods and droughts that will adversely affect the water and food supply, not to mention energy. Most of Tajikistan's electricity is supplied through hydropower. The country ranks 135th in the world on carbon dioxide emissions, making it one of the least responsible for climate change. A lot of people, when they think about who's most affected by the climate change, who did not contribute but then most affected, people immediately um, think of small island developing states, you know, where the rising sea levels will affect them. But actually, countries like Tajikistan are actually also among the most vulnerable countries in the world because of this acute water stress. This is Hyojo Kim, a principal manager of the Energy Efficiency and Climate Change Team at the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development. EBRD is a multilateral bank that promotes the development of the private sector and entrepreneurial initiative in 38 economies across three continents. Last year, they made over $5 billion in green investments. In a country like Tajikistan, the solutions most urgently needed are not the big picture ones that will slow the overall rate of climate change. Kim's job here is to help the people on the front lines of climate change not get completely screwed. That's why Climadapt was created. So Climadapt program was uh, launched in late 2015 with the aim of finding innovative financing mechanism and practical and concrete climate resilience solutions to you know, address the country's climate vulnerability. With the help of climate investment funds and in partnership with local banks, the program began investing in methods and technologies that would immediately address water and energy efficiency, as well as soil erosion. Mirzo of Mumin, a farmer, was one of the beneficiaries. In 2017, he recounted what happened next for a case study on the project. The money was used for irrigating the land. The land had not been used in some time. We planted cotton, it provided around 40 people with jobs. They come here and work and earn their wages. In the future, we intend to establish market gardens where we can grow melons, gourds, and other types of crops between the cotton. Efficient irrigation equipment and drip irrigation specifically, like we heard about in last week's episode of this podcast, were some of the most popular measures adopted during Climadapt. They were often implemented alongside greenhouses, which reduce evaporation and allow for a longer growing season, which improves crop yields. 
Over four years, the program reached over 3,500 beneficiaries, mentoring local loan officers in the process. And their loan officers then became the champion of promoting climate adaptation measures and investments to their clients in the village. So I think this um, sort of bottom-up approach really worked because at the later stage, a lot of beneficiaries told us that um, when we asked them how they heard about this irrigation equipment or relatively unheard of practices, they told us that their neighbors implemented it and they liked it, so they wanted to follow. So it wasn't necessarily the sort of a love of the earth. I want to do good for the environment, but more for you know practical measures that, oh, I heard about it from my neighbor. In other words, the farmers are making money. And thanks to this extensive involvement of the local institutions, we were able to scale up on the follow-up program uh, with a three times the size of the credit. And this is where these types of concessional financing projects that are finite in length have the potential to make a real long-term impact even after they wind down. It's not just about the return on investment for the individual beneficiaries. It's about making climate-smart investments mainstream and creating a model for others to follow, proving to local partner banks and loan officers that climate-smart loans are not just good for the planet, they're good business. Another financing program administered by EBRD, aimed at shoring up the energy efficiency of residential buildings in Turkey, had the same end goal, to be that initial shove that creates momentum so that eventually, hopefully, entire sectors can be remade Green. Tarif uh, is a residential energy efficiency financing facility. Uh, we started the facility in 2014. I believe it was April 2014. And the first bank joined towards the end of that year. Uh, and then uh, we kicked it off with various elements. Uh, and uh, we are now at a closing stage of the uh, program. Murat Sarioglu leads the technical consultancy team hired by the EBRD to help implement Tarif on the ground. The program has funded nearly 6,000 projects, creating energy savings equivalent to 28,000 households. So unlike ClimAdapt, this wasn't a resiliency program. It was more aimed at big-picture climate mitigation, but it had a similar model. We trained hundreds and hundreds of loan officers in the banks so that they know what energy efficiency means at residential level. When we are not around, uh, they can see their loans going to energy efficiency investments. A married couple in Istanbul, the Yekes, moved out of their old home temporarily in 2016 so it could be reconstructed with tarif financing to be earthquake-proof and more energy efficient. Our old building was built in the 1970s. The heating system was added a few years later, and the pipes were installed outside the building, so the heat loss was enormous. There was no insulation, and the house was cold. Serdar Ekrem Yeke says that in their newly rebuilt home, their monthly heating bill has been reduced by about a third, thanks to details like double-glazed windows to improve insulation. New buildings here are now required by law to have at least a C energy efficiency rating. But all tarif projects are built to at least B grade. That's 20% more efficient than the baseline requirement. Eventually, our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will live in this house. This is our family, our loved ones. So it is important to create a healthy environment for them and, of course, a healthy country. 
The program also funded loans in two other categories, energy-efficient appliances, as well as mortgages for buyers to purchase B-grade homes and above. And the program hasn't just made an impact in the private sector. Sario Glue says they even worked with the government to effect policy change, eliminating red tape for green construction. Before that, it was a little bit more uh, uh, cumbersome procedure. I think uh, we're also proud of that because um, then you can go in and easily do thermal insulation of your building. The way the country looks at energy efficiency, the way they release legislation, bylaws, and most importantly, the the country's National Energy Efficiency Action Plan has a lot to do with these type of investments. One of the hallmarks of concessional financing is the generous terms, lower than average interest rates, longer grace periods, that sort of thing. Going back to the resiliency side of the equation, this kind of flexibility can make a huge difference to beneficiaries who are living in countries already feeling major effects of climate change. Jamaican onion farmer Randy Finnegan, for example. Okay, so this here is our pumpkin patch. Actually, it's, it's almost completed, completely harvested. But um, the reason for doing this too is that not all of the land is arable or ready for onion production. So we basically Finnegan had just secured some land with his partner when he got a loan through JN okay. Bank, which is providing low-interest loans in the agriculture and tourism sectors of Jamaica. He used it to build an irrigation system, but soon ended up with more water than he'd bargained for. We had actually experienced three floods on this farm. Um, this general area uh, where I'm standing, bottom of the gully, we have water up to eight, ten feet um, deep. Uh, so there's a bridge down there that is inundated also as a result of that. A lot of farmers lost, you know, their crops. And so Randy <laughs> was left in somewhat of a bind. Here he was, he had taken this loan and, you know, things. He was just ready to go to market when the flood happened. This is Indy McClymont Lafayette, a consultant with JN Bank's Adaptation Program and Financing Mechanism. Valued at a little over 90 million U.S. dollars, it is the largest pilot program for climate resilience in Jamaica and is in the final year of a five-year project. She says Finnegan's predicament was a good learning experience for everyone involved. Because whereas we were initially targeting one impact, another impact happened um, that wasn't a part of the original plan. So there had to be some flexibility, um, you know, looking at how we adjusted the, the impacts as well as even his repayment schedule. The low interest rate also helped make that repayment possible. This loan was 4%, you know, compared to much higher interest rates on other loans. So that made it very attractive to persons once they understood what it could be used for. And, and I think that was a, a, a good lesson learned. Going forward, it also became clear that before putting in expensive infrastructure, a thorough assessment and preventative landscaping had to be done on farms to prevent flooding, loss of soil, and loss of crops. We here have learned to be vigilant. We take nothing for granted um, where weather is concerned. Um, we stay tuned to the forecasts and we ensure that as part of our planting mitigation um, strategies are employed. Uh, my, my colleagues here have also recognized the work that we have done here to save this farm. 
and I have been voted in as their climate smart person. The program has also provided much needed relief and investment for beleaguered farmers who are feeling the impact of two global emergencies. With COVID, there's been quite a bit of job loss, as you would have already known. And the drought is starting in Jamaica, so the farmers are already, you know, crying out that they're experiencing a double whammy, climate change and COVID. But it turns out this program aimed at climate resiliency is also supporting pandemic resiliency, helping people weather the economic blows of the coronavirus. One of the good things is that we financed five aquaponics systems for five communities. And this will give the farmers an option to really continue farming year-round with less dependency. So I think two weeks ago, the first aquaponics farm produced some vegetables that the farmers were able to take to market, you know. And that was really a very happy moment for us because at least those farmers within those communities, they're feeling the impact, but they're also, they have an option. For Heat of the Moment, I'm Emily Johnson. Next time on Heat of the Moment, how climate change is increasing the intensity of storms and what the world can do to become more resilient. People have talked about spending 2 or 3% of GDP on this, and it causes certain people, they, they say it's totally unacceptable. You know, at the peak of the war effort, World War II, the United States was spending 39% of its GDP wow. to protect its children. We can do 2 or 3%. That's next week on the podcast. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the Climate Investment Funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.